0: In our tradition, epiphany comes after Christmas and epiphany is a weird word but when we talk about epiphany, what we're doing is we're celebrating the glory of Christ that's been revealed not just to us but to the whole world. And epiphany always starts with the coming of the magi and it always ends with the transfiguration. And in the transfiguration, this glory of Christ that's at the heart of epiphany, it's very easy to see. It's evident even for those of us who aren't biblical scholars that something really important is going on here. But what's harder to see is what to make of all of it. For some of it. For some of us, we might read this passage and think, could this actually have happened? In our culture that values empiricism, you have to be able to test it and touch it for it to be true. This seems too crazy. For other of us, we're fine with the fact that this happened, but like Peter and James and John, we're filled with our own questions about what does this mean. And yet, for some of us, still we might see this and be so raptured in wonder that we lose sight of the main point. So our challenge here today is to try to focus on what is actually happening here? What's the core of what matters about the transfiguration? And how does that matter for us as we live our lives? So that's what our challenge for us today is. And as we look at the text, one of the first things we see is that Peter invites Peter, James, and John to go up with him. Now, this is not a weird thing in the Gospels. It's not odd for Jesus to give a select few of his disciples a front row experience. A few chapters before this, in Mark chapter 5, Peter gave these same three disciples exclusive insider access that no one else got to see as he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. So the fact that we have these three disciples alone with Jesus is not unusual. What is unusual is what happened at the beginning of that sentence when Mark says, after six days, you can see it there in verse two. Now, if y'all are in school, perhaps your teacher has taught you about the importance of good transitions in your writing. You want to be able to connect your ideas so your reader can follow from one paragraph to the next. Now your teacher might not like the transitions that Mark has, because oftentimes they're really simple. It's just, now Jesus did this. Or, again, Jesus was doing that. But this transition that we have here is unique in the entire Gospel of Mark in its specificity. It says, after six days. And so that leads us to wonder, what happened six days earlier? And so you can uh, thumb over a page in your Bible to go to Mark chapter eight, verse twenty-seven, and we can read about what happened there. Uh, and so I'll I'll kind of recount that for you here. All up to that point in Mark's Gospel, Jesus has been demonstrating through word and deed that he is in fact the Christ. And at this point in Mark eight twenty-seven, Peter finally gets the picture, and he says. You are the Christ. And this is a hinge moment in the entire gospel where up until then, Jesus was trying to show that he was the Messiah, and all after then, he's trying to show what kind of Messiah he is. And so Jesus immediately starts to get to work on that. He says, what kind of Messiah am I? I'm the kind of Messiah that will be rejected, that will suffer, and will die and will rise again. And Peter does not like this, because Peter has something else in mind. So he says, "Uh, Jesus, you are wrong. To which Jesus says, "Uh, Peter, you are Satan. (laughs) Which didn't mean that he was actually saying, Peter is Satan, he was saying, Peter, you're doing Satan-like things. You're behaving in a way that Satan would behave, saying, Jesus, you don't actually have to die. It's as if you can hear the voice of the serpent in Genesis 3 saying, did God really say you have to do that? And so we have just six days earlier, Peter being diametrically opposed to the cause of Christ. Perhaps you might think that you're not the kind of person that Jesus would want anything to do with. Perhaps you've thought of all of the things that you've done in your life that would lead Jesus not to want to invite you to come along with him. For some of us, perhaps, even in the past six days, we've felt that. But if that's you this morning, Jesus says, come with me. Come with me up the mountain. I have something I want to show you. And so what does Jesus have to show us? Well, uh, what do Peter, James, and John see? they see Jesus transfigured. All of a sudden, he's glowing with light. And not only that, we have Moses and Elijah there. It's all so hard for us to make sense of. This is where we get to ask, what is going on here? Why is Jesus glowing? Where did Moses and Elijah come from? How did Peter and James and John even know that they were Moses and Elijah? Did they have name tags on? I don't know how that worked. But... This is where it's important for us to zoom out and look at the big picture. The big picture here is that in the Transfiguration, the Father is revealing the heights of Christ's glory. And so we can, it's kind of easy for us to see that, but one way we can see that is how Jesus starts to glow with light. Now, although in a much more, in a much less glamorous, Amazing version, we have all probably experienced something like this before. You have probably had a friend whom you've known reasonably well that all of a sudden, for some reason, you saw a different side of them. Maybe you saw them in their work when they were in their element doing something very good, something that they were very good at. Maybe you were spending time with them and a mutual friend who brought out a different aspect perhaps of their humor. And you thought, geez, I didn't know that about this person. That's essentially what's happening here with Peter and James and John as they see Jesus, but just on a much larger scale. Here in the Transfiguration, they're seeing Jesus in his heavenly context. Now it's really easy for us to forget this as we look back in history as we look back at the Gospels. But Jesus, though he was fully God, was also fully man. And so he would have gotten hungry or tired just like you and me. He probably got sick. And Peter and James and John, as they traveled along with him, they would have gotten to know his idiosyncrasies, those things that make him human. What he liked to do after a long day to relax or what his sense of humor was. For them, it was very evident that Jesus was human, just like they were. And so here, when Jesus is arrayed in light, they see this other side of Jesus revealed in his heavenly glory that Jesus is in fact also God as much as he is a human being like you and me. So we see Jesus glorified in that way, But we also see him glorified relative to what's happening with Moses and Elijah. Now, even if we don't know anything about the Bible, we probably know the names Moses and Elijah. We probably know that they're a big deal. They're two of the largest heroes of the Old Testament. And instead of going into detail about what makes them so amazing in the Old Testament, I just want to point out to you that they are not glowing. Jesus is the only one who's arrayed in light, not them. Moreover, went this, uh, as they go down the mountain, Moses and Elijah are gone, but Jesus remains. It's evident that Jesus' glory far surpasses these two f- figures who are honestly quite unparalleled in all of the history of God's people. Jesus is on a totally different level. So here we see Jesus, his glory revealed by the Father in the transfiguration. But this light show, this comparison with Moses and Elijah, that's not chiefly how Jesus is glorified here. We have to look to something else to see the heights of his glory. And kind of like how we read about Elijah earlier in the Old Testament reading today, God brought about all these amazing things. He brought about the earthquake, the, the wind, the fire. But he was chiefly present in the still small voice. And similarly here in the transfiguration, if we're going to truly grasp the heights of Jesus' glory, we have to look to the voice of the Father. So what does that voice say? It says, this is is my beloved son. Listen to him." And this is very important not only because it's a disembodied voice that's coming out of the heavens. I think we can all agree in general if that happens something important is going on. But this is important even more so because this is the second time something like this has happened in the book of Mark. You may remember that at the beginning of Jesus's ministry as he was baptized there was again, or before, a voice from the heavens, where the Father said, you are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father was speaking about Jesus to Jesus. He was confirming Jesus' identity and commissioning Jesus to do the work that Jesus had to do. So how does that compare to what we see here? Here we see it says, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. So a few things are changed there. The Father is still speaking about Jesus, yes, but he's not speaking to Jesus. He's speaking to the disciples, commissioning them to do their work. Now this is all the more significant when we think about what had happened six days earlier. Because six days earlier, Peter was not listening to Jesus. Peter was saying, yes, Jesus, I think you are the Christ, but I think you're going about this all wrong. The salvation that you have in mind is not right. You see, what the problem is, the problem is that our people for far too long have been oppressed and marginalized by the Roman government. And what we need is we need military or political power to set things right. That's what Peter was thinking of when he said, Jesus, there's no way you can die, because if you die, we won't be able to get this new order in place. But the Father says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus when he says that he's going to suffer and be rejected and die. Listen to Jesus when he says, if you're going to follow him, that means you're going to have to have some kind of death too. You're going to have to take up your cross. And this heightens the glory of Jesus because it's unbelievable for us to think that this very human person, who is also God, would suffer in a way like that. And this is actually how Jesus is chiefly glorified. There is a point in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, Now the Son of Man is glorified. And Jesus doesn't say that after a mighty miracle that he does. He doesn't say it after he just finishes a great sermon. He says it once Judas goes to betray him. The Son of Man, Jesus, is glorified chiefly in the lowliness of his call. So in the transfiguration, we see the Father revealing the heights of Christ's glory in the lowliness of Christ's call. And that is exactly how Jesus would be glorified, because there would be a time in his ministry where he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, the reception of a king, all of the glory that he can get from an earthly perspective right there. And yet, six days later, he would suffer, he would be rejected, and he would die. And when that happens, instead of a cloud overshadowing him and a voice coming down from the heavens, he would cry up, he would cry out to the heavens and darkness would overshadow the land. And because of that, he, these enemies, these Peter, James and John, these people who had been opposing him, instead of being his enemies, they would become his emissaries, they would become his ambassadors. And that is the glory of Christ to make sinners into righteous people who are advancing the cause of Christ instead of opposing it. That is how Jesus is glorified. And so if that's what the transfiguration is all about, that we see the heights of the glory of Christ revealed in the lowliness of his call, then what does that mean for us? Well, first, I would propose that one thing we can do is we can worship, we can marvel. As we see this Jesus, who though was arrayed in light, would take on our darkness, who though was the king of the universe, would die as a Roman slave. When we see that, and he did that to make us his enemies, his ambassadors, what does that do in our hearts? Does it fill us with gratitude? Does it fill us with joy? What is going on? Pay attention to that. Lean into that. But also, I think it's important that we listen. That we listen to the Father's words when he says that we're to listen to Jesus. We're to listen to Jesus when he says that he's the kind of Messiah that would suffer and be rejected and die. We're to listen to Jesus when he says that his followers are also going to take on a kind of death. And he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his own cross, and follow me. But we also must listen to Jesus when he says that he will rise again. And we also must listen to Jesus when he says that whoever seeks to save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's, he will find it. We have to keep these two things in tension, both the glory of Christ and the suffering of Christ as we follow him. Because if we don't, we're liable to dangers in our lives as Christians. It would be easy for us to take on a mindset of defeatism, saying if we lose sight of the glory of Christ, that the way of Christ is only one of suffering and pain. And if life is not hard, then we're doing it wrong. On the other hand, if we lose sight of the suffering of Christ, it would be easy for us to think that we're only entitled to glory. If we follow Jesus, our life is going to become easier. That's what God owes us. And so instead, we must keep these two things in tension. And because, as we see here, Peter had a greater danger of falling into triumphalism, of thinking that life in Christ was only the glory, I just want to draw our attention to one way in which that could manifest itself in our life if we don't hold in tension this glory and the suffering both of Christ and for us who follow in his footsteps. So if we think that the life of a Christian is all glory and no suffering, if we forget that Jesus won by what looked like losing, that Jesus's victory came in his death, we're likely to forget that we're also called to a certain kind of death as well. Because if we're honest as we look at either who Jesus says he is or what Jesus calls us to do, there are gonna be times when we disagree with him There are going to be times when we want to oppose him like Peter did. We might think that what Jesus has to say is outdated or naive, or we might think it's too good to be true. Whatever the case is, we just don't want it. So what do we do then? Well, we remember the suffering of Christ. We remember that Christ won through his death. And so even though this seems like it would lead to our suffering if we do this thing that Jesus said, if we believe this thing about Jesus, we can remember his transfiguration. We can remember his glory and his death and resurrection and see how his suffering actually led to his glory, that they are one and the same. And so when we can see that, we can trust in his goodness for us in these things that we have a really hard time with and we can ask for his help as we die a little bit to our own desires no longer insistent on having our own way over the way of Jesus that's a small way in which by holding intention the glory and the suffering of Christ we can walk more faithfully in his footsteps and that actually might make life harder for a bit. But if we continue on this journey with Christ, we will come to see and learn and experience more and more and more the goodness of Christ and his glory in our own lives and be able to share that with others as well. So the glory of the transfiguration gives us hope and confidence to faithfully share in christ's call to take up his cross now this is going to be hard work if we look at the example of peter and james and john it was hard for them even after they experienced this the voice of the father from the heavens saying look you better listen to what jesus has to say about this they had a hard time if you read ahead in the next few chapters of mark they consistently got it wrong. They consistently thought the way of Jesus would only be the way of glory. We continue to see that even as Jesus is going to be taken away by the guards, Peter pulls out his sword to try and fight, to try and fight the guards because he says, this can't be it. This can't be the way that you're going to be the Christ. It's hard for us to hold these two things in tension. But... In our epistle reading this morning, we read from that same Peter, and he he was seeming like he had grown in holding these two things in tension. He actually was alluding to the transfiguration to encourage his followers, the people that he was pastoring, to follow the ways of Jesus. So we see on the other side that Peter has grown in Christ's likeness, he's grown in his ability to hold these two things in tension. So we can see that for us, it's gonna be a hard journey as we try to grow in this way, but by the grace of Jesus, growth is possible. And we have a great opportunity for that coming up because Transfiguration Sunday is the last Sunday of Epiphany. And this Wednesday, will start Lent, where we have our own way to walk towards Jerusalem with Jesus, to enter into his suffering, that we might be prepared to better experience his glory. So as we look at what's going on here in in the Transfiguration, we can be prepared to join with Jesus in his glory, yes, but also his suffering as we enter into the time of of Lent. So, may we continue beholding Jesus in his glory, as we see the lowliness of his call both for him and for us, as we receive his grace, and as we listen to his call to take up our cross. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.